welcome to Advanced Neuroeducation Podcasts. Informative, interesting topics, guests, and a bit of brainstorming, and sometimes we even have a bit of fun. So, here we go. Okay, welcome back to Advanced Neuroeducation Podcasts. My name is James McLaughlin. Today is a motor control musing titled The Consequences for Your Actions, Raising the Stakes to Improve Motor Learning. In physical rehab, we are always trying to consider ways to improve learning. We're always trying to get better carryover effect. We want that neuroplasticity to stick. And there's been a bit of research um, generated recently and and it's well it's generated some discussion uh, that's really exciting but it also makes me think of something that happened to me early this year so bear with me while I tell a little story it was I think it was July this year which is winter here in Australia and we went to the snow uh, on a family holiday my wife can ski she can ski very well um, and my two teenage kids had been exposed to a little bit of skiing, but they wanted to learn how to snowboard, and I'd never done anything, um, but the idea of snowboarding with the, with the kids was good. So the three of us learned how to snowboard, snowboard while my wife skied around the mountains having a great time. There was lots of snow. We were at Mount Buller. It was a fantastic ski season. Um, and we're learning how to snowboard, and as you know, with the, if, if those of you who have done snowboarding, you know, you, you, you get the, idea, the general idea of, you know, getting on the board and and then learning how to uh, um, turn and put on the brakes as you're going down a gentle slope. And you learn a turn back onto your heels, um, and then you also learn how to do a toe turn. Now, as an ex-skateboarder, and when I say ex-skateboarder, you know, like when I was 14 or 15, I did a lot of skateboarding. I had the idea of like leaning back on my heels to put on the brakes and, and dig the blade of the snowboard into the snow sort of made sense. And so that's that's similar to to when you would um, when you do a similar sort of maneuver on the skateboard when you're going too fast down a hill. So um, I got the hill aspect going quite well and, and the kids were similar as well. And then we got to the next bit, which was a little bit more difficult, which was trying to um, do a toe turn, which is um, turning the other direction. So then you then once you've got a toe turn, then you can sort of go from one side to the other and then you, you start to actually look like a snowboarder. Anyway, I got to the point. So it was probably day two, first day standing up, getting a little bit of a gliding and turning and um, heel turning and falling over a lot and getting very sore. And second day starting to get a little bit more of an idea um, and then trying to get this toe turn, which was challenging, sort of got a few, but it wasn't really happening. And then, um, I don't know, if when you go to the snow, you see these little kids, they're probably about, oh, they're learning how to ski and they, they've, they follow the instructor and they snake behind them in, in a line and they often have very cute little helmets on with you know, rabbit ears and Martians antennas and things like that. They're very, very cute and they, they're very, very tiny. And the, the kids, when they learn to ski, they don't have any ski poles. So they're, they're learn, learning, learning to master without using their arms. Anyway, sometimes you get a, a, a long snaking line of these, t- these little kids and I managed to get some momentum going up and I'm going down the, the crowded, the, the most common part um, slope with most of the people and most of the beginners, which I was. 
And I started to generate some speed and, and I'd, I'd done a, a heel turn and then I was stuck between like a, a, a fence and then sort of I didn't anticipate they'd come so fast with these cute little kids. And I was sandwiched and I was heading towards the kids and I was thinking, well, there's two, my brain was probably thinking this, there's two choices here. I have to do a toe turn, which I'm not very good at at the moment and I'm not very confident with it. Um, or I'm gonna hit these kids and the, the damage could have been pretty bad or I was gonna fly and stack uh, into this fence and it was gonna be embarrassing and probably very painful. So what happened was I, I, I did it. I, I dug in and I, I did a toe turn. Probably it would have been the best toe turn I'd, I'd ever done at that stage and sort of swerved past and, and didn't hit the children and came back and did a heel turn and I did it. That was my first proper toe turn and well, that was it. I pretty much, a bit like riding a bike, I sort of had it then. I knew, my body knew exactly how, how much to dig in and when you're going at a certain pace and, and the feel I was probably getting from the board um, and, and, and how to uh, correct and un overcorrect and undercorrect if I needed to. So what's actually going on there? And this is this idea of consequences for my actions. The consequences are quite large. Um, I could have killed a small child, I'll probably not killed them, but I could have done some serious damage to a cute little kid. Uh, and I could have killed myself by flying to this fence and there was a big slope off the back of that as well. So there was consequences for this toe turn. I had to do it and it made it happen and it made it stick. And it comes to this idea of, um, and what made me think of that story was a paper that I came across this year. And I'll put this paper in the, in the readings um, attached to the podcast. This is a paper from this year. It's a paper by, from Backham and Marigold it's about learning from the consequences of our action improves motor memory. Um, and I think along these lines, I think they did something like they, they did an adaptation walking task with, with people. Um, and the adaptation was they had to adapt to wearing prism glasses. So if you put prism glasses on, you have to go through a period of adaptation. So if you're doing things like your foot placement, you have to, um, you'll, learn, you'll make errors and then you'll learn to adapt. Um, to the different visual feedback that you're getting through the prism glasses. So with this particular task, I think they were walking and they had to place their foot on, cer on certain locations and, and they were adapting to the prism glasses as you would expect. Um, but what happened if they, they added another um, uh, control uh, or another variable uh, for the uh, experimental group where they would experience an unexpected slip perturbation if they weren't accurate? So there were consequences to them not actually stepping in the right spot. And when they compared the groups where they just did the normal adaptation versus adaptation with this um, consequence of, of slipping over um, an unexpected slip perturbation, um, they that group had better generalization across walking tasks they found and also had a faster relearning a week later. So it seemed to enhance this neuroplasticity, which, which is what we want. And, and so the idea is that, um, and it's, I suppose it's nothing new, but I suppose it's nice to see a, a, a clean, clever little study that demonstrates this to us as clinicians. And because we do lots of work, work with helping people to learn how to walk and balance, um, we can relate to it. So as expected, both groups actually showed learning adaptation. It's just that when you add in that whole idea of threat, surprise, if you like, and also there'll be these aspects of um, error-based learning and, and how you use feedback 
and also the meaning ar around this, um, it seems to um, enhance the learning, which is pretty cool. So then you start thinking, oh, in rehabilitation, physical rehabilitation, how can we bring this in to our practice? And it also makes you think about it with perturbations. Um, which of the 10 movement training principles, so those of you who don't know, um, the 10 movement training principles um, we, we've uh, developed and we're going through at Advanced New Education as one of our fundamental core areas that we keep referring back to, to improve our terminology and to prove our um, collaboration, if you like, particularly when we want to collaborate between neuro and vestibular and sports and these things, which we always do. Anyway, so which of the 10 movement training principles? We know error-based feedback, or error-based learning it would be part of this probably. Uh, feedback would be part of it. It's interesting when you actually perturbate and, and, and fall, and there's consequences for this, and remember in these experiments, people are safe, they're in a harness. Um, practice and variability is another principle which would come into practice because we're manipulating the variability quite dramatically though. And there's also the question, is there reward? Is there reward-based learning? So is the reward the idea of then when you actually are perturbated and then you can come up with a protective balance reaction or a step and save yourself, is is the idea of staying safe? And we, we, we talk about this on the balance and motor control course a lot, um, and also the motor control concepts for training, is, is staying safe and also re remaining safe part of reward-based learning? And at the moment we're, we're sticking with that idea until proven otherwise that safety is a key part of reward-based learning and then that does help you to stick and develop habits. And sometimes habits and uh, reward-based learning for balance is not always uh, ideal. But um, in this situation, the ability to step to save yourself um, is important, but it seems to have this broad carryover effect, this enhanced learning, um, and, and which is very, very exciting. And then it makes you think of some other study that's been done over the last few years at uh, Neuroscience Research Australia in Sydney. And uh, so this is under the group of Professor Stephen Lord and they've been doing some work with um, walking along a in, a, in a gate laboratory, they've got a, and they've got a pathway and then you wear a harness so that you're safe. And as you work, walk along, they set it up so that you have these unexpected, a tire would unexpectedly slip, or one would flip up and you'd act, um, you know, unexpectedly trip. So it slips and trips. And the idea was, can we manipulate the training environment in a safe way to improve protective balance reactions? And which may be a powerful effect to prevent falls, say in the elderly, which is a huge problem. And they found that there was some really good training effects at, um, happening, and very fast. And they would, and they were training effects that would hold on across a period of days or weeks. There's still some question marks. Or there are some question marks, for example, around the carryover effect into different, you know, um, tasks of daily life. But in terms of the ability to you know, in quite an amazing way, bring out some neuroplastic learning, it does make you stop and think we need to invest some time, some thought um, and some creativity in our clinical reasoning to think if we, you know, over the next 10 years, as clinicians, can we come up with some novel and practical ways to add in perturbation? Now, the word perturbation is interesting because we use it a lot. 
I'm not talking about standing on a wobble board or wobbling around or, you know, standing on a piece of blue foam and that kind of stuff. What we're talking about here, and there's another paper which I'll put in the readings, which is about defining perturbation balance training, for example, as balance training that uses repeated, externally applied mechanical perturbations to trigger rapid reactions to regain postural stability in a safe and controlled environment. So it's the idea that it has to be external and you have to then trigger a response in that person. And obviously this is gonna be implicit learning. You're not going to explicitly come up with a solution and think this one through. You're, what we're doing is we're forcing a reaction to take place. If you think about the study done with the at Neuroscience Research Australia, when they trip and slip, they would often fall over the first few times, but then they wouldn't. And so the learning happens quite rapidly and then they hold on to that learning um, for a long period of time. So it, it seems to be a very sticky neuroplastic um, parameter to use, which is exciting. So um, I think what we need to do now as clinicians is to start thinking about, as I said, ways to use it more effectively in our own training. So if you look at, now there's a, there's a, another paper which I put here from McCrum et al, which is looking at perturbation-based balance training, principles, mechanisms, and implementation into clinical, in clinical practice. So it's a good paper, and it's a good, it's a good paper because it's very timely. In 2022, we've got a nice review paper where the evidence is at, and as clinicians, we can read this and think about, okay, well, this is what's out there, this is what's happening. What can we use now? Um, and also, how can we inform these researchers as to what maybe they should try next? So there's treadmills now where you can have speed changes and unexpected translations. Um, admittedly, they're ex really expensive, um, but I imagine technology does get cheaper over time. And if you start thinking about the cost effects of things like falls prevention and in injury prevention, then there will be organisations where it's probably a worthwhile investment. Things where we can add in slips and trips. So you get, it's it's not exactly an easy thing to do. Um, although you think about it, more aged care facilities, hospitals, gyms, physio gyms, private practices have now gantry systems with harnesses. So you can add an element of this in a safe way, much more safe than ever before. Um, there's also, you could put in, you could wear a, a, a belt, so around your torso, and it could be pushed and pulled externally to generate um, these balanced reactions. Um, you could add in add in more of the challenges into a task, so you maybe have learnt an aspect of task and balance and motor control, and then you add in these little external perturbations, and that's how I first saw saw it being done, which I'll talk about in a minute. Um, we still got some questions to ask about the cost of these things, uh, the training that's involved in terms of uh, making sure that the people engaged in this and doing it safely. There's also the question of, it's just some patients who are not gonna like it. I mean, you, the anxiety developed, and if you're highly anxious, that could that could um, absorb all the benefits. You know, anxiety can eat people alive and, and they won't ever come back to you and they won't trust you. The whole therapist-patient relationship is ruined. So you've got to, you've got to, you know, probably engage in a dialogue and a conversation, uh, talk about what we, you're leading towards with your rehabilitation, 
Um, maybe do it in a, in a simple and uh, maybe self-generated perturbations first before adding in external perturbations. There may be different grades of perturbation that you, you can build up to to give, get people to feel like they, they do have the responses and they are strong enough because there will be some people who think um, they'll be very frightened um, but then there were some people who'll be really surprised to see that they they did manage to save their balance, um, and it just sort of happened as part of automatic implicit learning, which is always very very powerful. If you can if you can work through that um, as you coach your patients through that, that, they're really magic moments when you start to realise, um, and sometimes between you and your patient, you're both surprised by how powerful the effect is and how, and how well you're going and this is one of the most exciting this is the exciting part that that keeps uh, me as a neurophysio I, I engage in these things with patients and it's just so much it's just so rewarding so there's probably grades of perturbation and i think we we could have a we should definitely have a discussion about how we can do this and we should share it we could think how are the sports people already doing it and, and how are people doing it in martial arts and how are people doing it how are ballet dancers training for it and how are um, you know, uh, AFL footballers doing it versus soccer players. Um, there's, there's, uh, you know, it's going to be really, really interesting. And then thinking about what are we already doing for stepping reactions for things like Parkinson's disease and dementia, and also elderly with uh, falls risk, and how are people maybe already bringing in these perturbation sorts of things? So, in fact, the first perturbation I ever saw was in the late 1990s. So I, was, so I was on a Bobath course and I think we had a stroke patient and there was a demonstration of the stroke patient gaining some control in stance on the hemiplegic side. They were gaining some hip was coming up into out of out of flexion to a more of a neutral position if you like. They were, genera they were generating some better activity around their gluteal muscles and pelvic stability both laterally and in the anterior-posterior plane. So this was really good and this sort of makes sense because you're generating some nice tall stance on that side you know, in preparation for say stance phase and walking or, or pivoting for a transfer or something like that. So these, this is really important part of getting people, facilitating them into positions so that they can explore and learn ways to move to improve their mobility after a stroke, very, very common. And a Bobath course would have an emphasis on, um, you know, the, the quality of the movement, um, graded introduction, uh, and get patients patients to, to feel what it's like, and using your hands to facilitate, to allow them to get into those positions. Sometimes it looks very passive, but it's often not passive, it's often just um, guidance, uh, touch and cues to help people work their way into that position. Anyway, we'd got this patient into a nice stable hip position and it, was, it wasn't a fast process, but they'd got into that position, which was nice to see. And then the next thing that the therapist did was started to say, hold this position, start to push and pull and perturbate. And then you see this sort of fast reactions and you see all these muscles sort of kicking and holding and sticking and they start and, and she, and the, the instructor was saying, um, we're just doing some perturbation now to make these muscles sort of react and hold and get them to stick. And then I also saw again a bow, of course, we actually were done with the shoulder, with a sort of a placing and holding of, of shoulder in an ele elevation, and then doing lots of fast, rapid shoulder movements to sort of get people to hold that position to, uh, to generate more muscle activity. Because, you know, those rotator cuff muscles around the shoulder, they like some of the, the quick and the holding and the reactive things, especially when you're trying to generate muscle power, especially that sort of fast twitch stuff. 
which is important for shoulders as well as important for hips. And then, uh, you know, and then we, we saw in the sporting field, you know, uh, rehabilitation for throwing and how they were using things like wobble sticks to generate fast and, and self-generate and external perturbation, if you like. I don't know whether you've seen, I don't know if they're always called, but I call them wobble sticks. They're a big stick, you hold them in the middle, you give it a shake and then you try and hold it because you give it a shake and it starts to wobble and it's quite a powerful wobble and you've got to try and hold certain positions in that wobble. So that's a way of maybe self-generating some external perturbations. It's probably a bit more predictable, um, you know, because it is self-generated initially, but it does generate muscle activity. I suppose these were the first signs as a physiotherapist I was seeing perturbations used. And it's, and it's, it's been really exciting to be able to use that. But now I think when we look at the evidence, the recent evidence over the last two or three years, how it has dramatic, powerful memory effects on motor learning, then I think you've got to, I think you've got to start, you know, we've got to start re-looking at this um, and thinking about how do we safely use it. And if more people have um, body weight support systems, we could maybe do it more safely. Because it, although the evidence is new, like I just said, you know, if I learned some of this stuff in the late nineties, um, remember, if you think you're being innovative, the reality is someone is probably, well, they would have thought of it before, um, maybe not in your field, but, but as they say, necessity is the mother of invention and people have had, uh, are going through the same process as you are and they've come up with these ideas. So um, it's nothing new, but it's, I think we're rebranding it. We're, evidence has brought it to our tent, was brought it to my attention again. And I think we've got to look at ways we can do it because the world of rehab has changed. In our clinic, we've got a body weight support treadmill system, and I know I've got I've got certain uh, brain injured patients. Then when we give them lots of body weight support, their performance actually decays. They sort of take up the support given by the harness, and they sort of sit in the harness, and then we can't generate the anti gravity extensive activity that we're trying to we're, that we're aiming for in the in a particular therapy session uh, and as a particular short term goal for their rehab. So what I've noticed with that, so that when I read this paper, I thought it just reminded me, I've got this patient, when I put the harness on, I'm gonna make it quite dramatic that when they don't extend, that they really drop down an inch or two into the harness and it's a bit of a shock because I wanted to add in that whole idea of surprise, a little bit of threat and also a dramatic performance error um, if they didn't continue to maintain that extension. And that's just something I'm finding as I play around with body weight support systems. Sometimes you think you want to do it graded and gradually reduce the kind of support or increase the support depending on what you're trying to do. But if you can have the harsh there so that they're safe, but there's large contrast between standing and walking uh, on their own and generating their own muscle activity versus not. Um, and you know, you, you may be able to manipulate this whole idea. So. Look, we will revisit this again as part of our motor control musings because um, inevitably perturbation uh, and inevitably some of our discussions around neuroplasticity and some of these really cool error-based learning things um, will come up again. So I'll finish it there. We've I've done it. I've done it in time this time. This is this is all about thinking about how can you generate larger consequences for people's actions without making them too anxious and keeping them safe, but see if you can use it to, to improve carryover effect. Because, you know, with the 
the strains and pressures of us not not spending as long with patients anymore we need to get maximum benefit in the time that we have with our patients that coaching role we have is becoming more and more valuable every year if we can find ways to safely engage and get things to carry over better i think it's pretty exciting um, be interesting to see what discussions we come up with this so i'll leave it there and uh, i think I think the next podcast might be something to do with the stibula. We've also got some stuff around return to learn after concussion. And also, um, actually, we've got one about baseline screening and concussion. So there's a few things happening in the concussion world just at the moment. Um, and also another one we're going to be talking about is fatigue and what's called the Goldilocks period uh, of performance with people with multiple sclerosis, which is really, really interesting. So I look forward to bringing that to you. So I'll leave it there. Catch you later. Bye.